Welcome everyone to the Penn Primary Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kendall Williams. So as of August 1st, there were over 4,600 cases of monkeypox in the United States, over 100 in both New Jersey and Pennsylvania each. It is a condition that we are gonna start seeing in our primary care practices. And if you're like me, you don't know much about it. So the monkeypox virus is not a new virus, but it's new to us and we quite rapidly need to get ourselves up to speed. So I put together a bit of an emergency podcast, looked for expertise within the Penn community, and we have actually truly international expertise within the Penn community, and we're happy to have it on the program today. So Dr. Stuart Isaacs is an associate professor of medicine at Penn and a member of the Division of Infectious Diseases. He is an international expert on viral diseases, specifically pox viruses, and maintains a lab studying pox viruses. He did his undergraduate at Brandeis Medical School at Yale, internal medicine and residency at Temple, and ID fellowship at Tufts and the NIH. Stu, thanks for coming on. Kendall, thanks for inviting me. I really look forward to this conversation. And with us again is Dr. Ann Norris. She is an associate professor of clinical medicine at Penn and a member of the Division of Infectious Diseases. Ann did medical school at Temple before residency at Pennsylvania Hospital and ID fellowship at Penn. Ann's podcast that she did with us on summer fever and Lyme disease was so popular that I asked Ann to come back and join us for this one as well. Ann, thanks for coming. Thanks, Kendall. So let's start with the basic question. Stu, I'll throw this to you. Tell us a little bit about monkeypox, the history of the virus and what it is. Yeah. So monkeypox is in the same family of the virus that's most notorious, and that's smallpox. So smallpox was a human disease that was caused by a virus called variola virus. And That virus over centuries killed billions of people in epidemic and pandemics. And it was in the late in the 1960s when the World Health Organization began an intensified program to eradicate smallpox. And and smallpox was the first and only disease currently totally eradicated. So naturally occurring smallpox doesn't occur. But it was really during this time when smallpox was being eradicated that another pox virus was causing human disease, and it was caused by a virus that was named monkeypox. Now, the name monkeypox is really a misnomer, similar to the cowpox virus that Jenner is credited as using as the first vaccine that was used to prevent smallpox. So like cowpox is not a cow-specific virus. It's actually a virus that's in rodents, and then as a zoonosis, it would jump and infect cows. And the first disease was seen in cows, and so people back then called it cowpox. But it's actually a rodent virus, and so similarly, cowpox could incidentally infect humans, and they would be called, said to have cowpox as, as the disease. So monkeypox is very similar in that the first animals the disease was noted in were monkeys, actually monkeys in research labs in, in Europe. And so the disease was first found in monkeys and got the name monkeypox. But the actual animals where the virus hides out in and continues to grow and incidentally infect humans is rodent species in Africa. 
So that's the history of monkeypox. So variola viruses are different than varicella viruses, but they have some common features, right, in terms of sort of a vesicular formation and so forth? Yeah. So and just to mention, you know, so chickenpox, which is caused by varicella virus, is a you know, so that's a herpes virus, and which is a very different type of virus, causes a different disease, a, a, a disease that hides out in neurons and can reactivate. And it, it has the name of chickenpox, but it's not a virus like smallpox or monkeypox, which are acute viral infections that are, do not have a dormant state and can reoccur. So monkeypox is really the first virus that we probably as American physicians have seen since smallpox that's in this category, right? Yeah, yeah. That, and, you know, interestingly, the U.S. was actually the first country out of Africa where monkeypox caused disease. And this was back in 2003, probably before you began your podcast days, when some exotic animals were imported from Africa to be distributed as pets. And when they were in a distribution center, those exotic animals, which included something called the Gambian giant rat, which some people find very interesting to have as a pet, those animals turned out to be carrying monkeypox, and they were either co-housed or too closely housed or not really treated in a sanitary condition, where they came in contact with prairie dogs, which are also animals that people use as pets. And it turns out the prairie dogs turned out to be very susceptible to monkeypox. And the prairie dogs got sick when were distributed to people. And the prairie dogs infected a whole host of people in the upper Midwest. About 74 cases of suspected or confirmed monkeypox occurred during that outbreak in 2003. And almost all the cases were associated with contact with sick prairie dogs. There was not this human-to-human -human transmission that we're seeing now with this, this current global outbreak of, of monkeypox. Has there been human-to-human -human transmission in Africa? Yeah, so, you know, human-to-human -human transmission, you know, so the initial infection is a zoonotic where someone comes in contact with a, a sick, an animal, but not always sick, but an animal carrying monkeypox, and they get the, they become the primary case. And in Africa, human-to-human -human spread was most would ha if it happened, would happen within the household. People living together, sharing meals together, sh sleeping potentially in the same bed. And so human-to-human -human transmission did occur, but the chain would quickly end. You know, most commonly a primary case would give a secondary case. Very rarely the secondary case would give a, a tertiary case. And, and the outbreak would then end very quickly because it was not spreading person-to-person. So this experience is even different than what has historically happened in Africa, where you have an outbreak that seems to be growing to a greater degree than the African experience. Is, am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, totally. And I always say this has been unprecedented. Many would not have predicted this type of global spread. And, you know, it has been out of Africa. There's been cases where people get sick 
get exposed and infected in Africa, then travel through by plane or other means and show up in a country and are diagnosed with monkeypox. But then there hasn't been transmissions uh, in those cases over the last decade or two. And so this, this outbreak has been totally unprecedented and the mode of transmission appears you know, to be different or not as described in historical cases in Africa. So has something happened to the virus itself? Uh, you know, so unlike, so we're all familiar with SARS-CoV-2, the cause of COVID, which is an RNA virus. Uh, RNA viruses replicate quickly, do not really care that much about the fidelity of their replication and therefore make mistakes. And, you know, as a novel coronavirus, it was the perfect laboratory experiment where this virus just grew hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people infected. It was mutating and has continued to mutate and found a way to increase its ability to spread. The, the pox viruses are DNA viruses, so a totally different type of virus. And it replicates using more higher fidelity or, or DNA polymerases that are more careful and don't make as many mistakes. But that's not to say there won't be mistakes made, and especially in this unprecedented human-to-human transmission, there could be some mutations happening. Now, I, it, it's really not clear if the mutations that are we're seeing in the virus are the explanation for why it's spreading to the extent that it's spreading today, or if the mode of transmission and the, the community that it's in and spreading in is is has just found the right niche to uh, to continue to spread. And that's not to say it won't continue to spread outside of that community. So let's talk about the outbreak itself, because you're, you're alluding to it. How did it start? Where are we at with it? And so forth. Yeah, we're going to have to learn a lot more, because the initial description and the first identification was just in May of 2022, so just a couple of months ago. You know, the odds are that this had been happening even prior to this and just was going undetected because it was, you know, presenting in a way that may not have looked like classical monkeypox, the disease that, you know, people would see in textbooks that describe the, the disease in Africa. So there was a good chance that this has been brewing for a longer period of time. And the community that it's been identified in and has continued to be the, the largest community where it's spreading is, is in men who have sex with men. And the transmissions are occurring through very close intimate contact, need not be sexual contact because it could occur from very close skin-to-skin contact and introduction of the virus through like microabrasions in the skin. And then in that community, having a number of different partners have kind of allowed this, this virus to continue to spread. And that's how, and so the, of the 4,600 cases in the U.S., most so far are confined to that community. Is that right? Right, yeah. That the very high percentage, uh, 98% are male. Yeah, yeah. 98% are males. And of the, of the information that the CDC has collected, and, and 94% of the 
98% identify as having men who have sex with men. And, you know, we all have this experience with COVID, which was, you know, 2% mortality when it first came out. And there was great fear. We were seeing coffins or not trucks lined up outside of New York emergency departments to handle the, the death toll. We, you know, we're not seeing that with monkeypox, right? So far, as I understand it, nobody has died of monkeypox. Slight correction. So, and also to step back a little historically. So it turns out there are two clades of monkeypox naturally occurring monkeypox in Africa. There's a Central African strain, which we're now, we're calling clade one. And the Central African strain of monkeypox is, is a virus that we know has a higher virulence, at least in Central Africa, has about a 10% mortality. There's a, another clade of virus out of West Africa, which we call clade two. And we're fortunate if fortunate could be used as a word to describe a unprecedented worldwide outbreak, that the virus that's spreading is a virus that came out of West Africa, and it's a less virulent, at most 1% mortality in, in West Africa. And in the U.S., there's been no deaths from, from in, during this current outbreak, although in two countries outside of Africa, I, I believe there's been two cases, one in, one in Brazil and one in Spain. I don't know any of the details of, of those, other than one of the cases was in an immunosuppressed or immunocompromised patient. And I understand you've seen cases of monkeypox, so I'm going to now direct my questioning to you in terms of the clinical features. How do these patients present? Well, I have to say, Kendall, as a clinician seeing these cases, this has been fascinating, just just riveting as an infectious diseases doctor. I'm literally learning about a disease. It is unfolding before us in a, in a way that you know we've never seen before, kind of like COVID, but a much less severe disease where I don't have to change my clothes in the garage before I go inside to see my family. You know, I'm less terrified of this disease. We have treatments, we have a vaccine. So, and, and it, it, it's, it has become, I mean, I'm sure I'm going to see lots of variations on it, but it has become a, you know it when you see it. And, and it largely looks exactly like the pictures in the books and the pictures in, online. So classically, and by that I mean the 2003 outbreak and the outbreak in breaks in Africa, monkeypox is said to start with a prodrome, with, you know, a, a febrile prodrome with fever, headache, lymphadenopathy, myalgia, followed by the appearance of the rash. In the current outbreak, often the first sign is the rash. You'll get a, a message from a patient saying, I have a couple of pimples on my body. Do I need to come in? And typically what uh, patients experience is a, a lesion start as a macule that's maybe two to five millimeters in size that evolves into a papule and then maybe a vesicle or pustule. They're deep-seated lesions. They often become umbilicated and, and they often, you know, if you look people over carefully, you'll find a lesion that looks just like the lesions that have been described, true pox lesions. They're often painful. Patients have been admitted for pain control because these lesions can be so painful. We see them in the genitals very commonly, perianally, on the scrotum, on the penis, and we see them on the extremities and potentially on the face and, and some on the trunk. The lesions eventually crust and fall off. Their life cycle is something like two, three, three and a half weeks. 
they're not typically all in the same stage. That is another thing that differs from the previous African outbreaks. They, you can continue to see additional lesions over the course of a week or so. So a lot of patients do have systemic symptoms, fever. They have, some patients have profound fatigue, like I have a patient who went to bed for three days, just exhausted, and they often have painful lymphadenopathy as well. The lymphadenopathy is in the groin or in the areas where It can where be diffuse or can be regional. Okay. Can I ask more about the, the lesions and just distinguishing them between, say, a primary herpes outbreak and yeah. also just molluscum contagiosum from human papillomavirus and yeah. genital so, warts? You know, how, how, do they, yeah. how do you differentiate those? So compared to herpes, herpes group vesicles on an erythematous base. So herpes lesions are typically painful, but you typically don't see them diffusely all over the body. If they're just in the genital region, you know, to actually get to see the blister of a herpes lesion, you're lucky because they're, they're transient. They last a couple of hours and typically they pop and you get this very shallow set of ulcers that sort of coalesce into a serpiginous shallow based lesion. So there may be a moment in time when you're looking at a genital lesion that's a vesicle where you're thinking, I don't know which way this is going to go, but a herpes lesion will not evolve into a monkeypox lesion over the next day. They'll, they'll be easily distinguishable. I actually sent Stuart photos of a patient with diffuse molluscum about three weeks ago because this patient, some of these lesions actually had pustules on them, which would, which would be very, very, very unusual for molluscum. And it turned out the patient had immune reconstitution syndrome from HIV, and that's what the pustules were from. It was molluscum that became inflamed. But in most situations, molluscum lesions, again, don't, they have that umbilication. And if, you know, if you squeeze them, that little ball of wax might come out of the center, but it's not really a pustule and they're not painful. Did I get that right, Stewie? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the great description, I, I, I should take a recording of this and, and use this because uh, that was a great description of it. Yeah, I, I think molluscum, though, is going to, you know, as we mentioned, household contacts of the monkeypox cases are going to happen. In fact, there's been two cases in children who were household contacts of monkeypox patients. And, you know, molluscum is very common in the pediatric community. And I think that's going to be, you know, Anne had a great description. And I think most uh, dermatologists would probably be able to tell that it's a molluscum and not a monkeypox, but I think it, it's going to be a difficult time going forward if this continues to spread as we're seeing. So what do I have to worry about if a patient comes in with monkeypox? And you said the lesions are painful, people can be in pain, but what else mm -hmm. should I be worried about happening? Well, again, what we're currently seeing is different than what has been described in Africa, and I imagine that's because this is clade two and not clade one. Previously, the the serious adverse events were as the virus involved organs, and people developed hepatitis, encephalitis, pneumonia. Here, so far, the Complications are largely pain-related. Patients develop tenesmus, and I've had a patient with rectal prolapse and basically an inability to defecate. We've had, patients have had to be admitted for pain control. They've had to be admitted for severe pharyngitis, where they are at risk of developing dehydration. And Kendall, just to mention and that the concern is, you know, that the monkeypox 
unfortunately being this clade two, less virulent and much lower mortality. But in certain patients, it could be more severe and you know, the immunocompromised are at risk of complications from one of the smallpox vaccines. And we, I don't know if we'll have time to get into the vaccines, but even people from a vaccine, a replication-competent vaccine in the immunocompromised could have a fatal outcome from that vaccine, as well as certain skin conditions could have very severe reactions to one of the vaccines. And so since monkey pox is in the same family and more virulent than the vaccine for sure, that there is concern that there could be some poor outcomes here in the U.S. if this virus gets into the, the, the wrong host. Stuart, how about pregnant women? I think that there's been some adverse events with previous mon- monkeypox outbreaks in pregnant women. Should we worry yeah, about it with yeah, this plague? Yes, and yes, pregnant, pregnant women too would potentially have a, a more serious outcome and even infections of, of the fetus from, from these pox viruses. But as Anne mentioned, we're fortunate in that, you know, the, unlike SARS-CoV-2, the novel coronavirus that came when we had no vaccines and no therapeutics, there was some preparedness going on here in the United States and around the world to be prepared for a potential smallpox being a much more deadly virus. And monkeypox and smallpox are such close family members that the vaccines and the drugs that were developed to to treat potential smallpox is going to be effective at hopefully preventing monkeypox and for treating monkeypox. And so in while most cases do not require treatment, there will be cases that we we use this drug, it's called or T-pox, which is a lot easier to pronounce. We use that drug in certain settings in patients with severe rectal pain or a pharyngitis potentially, and then certainly would be used in an immunocompromised host or someone else who's at a higher risk of a severe outcome. So the preparedness is one thing. We have these drugs available, but part of the problem we're experiencing is the implementation, the scale-up in use. And Anne, why don't you describe some of that. Yeah, so I have had occasion to acquire tecrivimat for patients, and both the diagnostic algorithm and the acquisition of the drug at first, to Stuart's point, were phenomenally onerous, just hours and hours of forms and paperwork to, to, to get these things. Both of them have gotten easier. Diagnosis has gotten much, much easier. And so so I think it's available to the primary care person to do these things now. So, Anne, you have a patient in front of you you think may have monkeypox. What do you do to diagnose it? What's the process? Yes. It's gotten easier. The first thing you do is go put on your PPE, your gown, gloves, your eye protection, and your N95, which is all the things that CDC recommends to keep that virus in the room and not on you. It no longer requires approval to get monkeypox testing. And in fact, here at Penn, if you make your way to the order entry box in Penn chart and type in monkeypox, you'll see an order for orthopox non-variola PCR parentheses monkeypox, and that's the one you want. It's already been pre-populated with all of the important information. There 
had been some concern about whether this test would be covered when sent to commercial labs, but I have been assured that patients are very unlikely to face a bill and that they would be able to successfully adjudicate it if for some reason they did, if their their particular payer gave them some trouble. The turnaround time for the test is supposed to be about 48 hours. I haven't had one come back yet using this methodology because prior to this week, we had to send all these tests out to the Department of Health and that there was this very onerous approval process and paperwork that was required. So I've sent a few this week. Nothing's come back yet, but I'm optimistic that this much simpler process will be make it much easier for us to manage these growing number of cases. Kendall, if I could just add uh, some additional info to what Ann was describing. So because these lesions are so deep-seated, A lot of people trying to diagnosis think that they need to somehow unroof and get some of the pus out of it, which is almost impossible to do unless you're a dermatologist doing a biopsy. And so using a swab, and you could use any type of swab except a cotton swab, you want to vigorously just rub the lesion with the swab. And it's it's the skin cells coming off that lesion that has virus in it and it, you know and it's just swapping the and get collecting enough of the cells that just naturally are being desquamating off of that lesion that the PCR is very sensitive and specific to then amplify and determine whether monkeypox is present if you're a pen person ordering the pen order you use the usual universal viral transport media, the same thing that you use to do, for instance, a respiratory panel or a herpes swab. And you only need one specimen per lesion, and CDC recommends that you swab it at least two lesions and try to get them at different stages. So inside the Penn community, we're using the same tubes that we would use for a respiratory viral panel. Outside of Penn, there may be some other collection system you just don't know, right? Yeah, it depends on the lab. If you're sending it to the Department of Health, it's a dry swab in a sterile urine cup. It's just a cotton swab, like as if you're doing a bacterial culture. Okay. So through that, we're able to diagnose it in 48 hours. I'm curious, Anne, what are you telling your patients in that time? So they're leaving your office, and maybe they're not feeling poorly enough to be hospitalized, but you're sending them home. What are you telling them while you're waiting for this to come back? Yeah. This has been very interesting. You know, where people are used to the COVID lockdown, and so I have told patients, go home. You should wear a mask when you're around other people. You should isolate from other people. You should keep all of your lesions covered, so Band-Aids on the ones that are on your hands or your, or your legs if you're wearing shorts. Don't share bedding. Don't share clothing. And that goes well at first. Virtually all the cases that I've sent have been confirmed. And, and, and then you have to tell people that they have to remain isolated until all of the lesions have scabbed over, the scab has fallen off, and new skin has formed. And that is a two- to three-week process. And people are less compliant with that advice. I would imagine. <laughs> and they're not feeling that sick at some point, right? Many of these people aren't feeling sick. They're, yeah. they're, for many of these people, this is just a rash and nothing else. Okay. So let's get back to treatment. The, you mentioned that the, the drug, I've forgotten the name. I'm sorry. I should know it. I'm the host of a podcast, but I've forgotten it. Kendall, it's Tecaviramat or T-Pox, you could call it. 
Okay, and so we had some some old stores of it available. Still, you were going over this, and let's say we do instead of forty six hundred cases, we have forty six thousand cases. What's the future of getting this available to others? Yeah, so so fortunately, this drug, which was developed and got FDA approved for treatment of smallpox, was FDA approved in two thousand and seven, and. My understanding is that the strategic national stockpile has plenty of this drug available. Now, I say my understanding because previous to this outbreak of monkeypox, I would have said that the vaccine that was recently approved for prevention of smallpox and monkeypox, a a vaccine called Genios, I would have also said that that vaccine was in the strategic national stockpile and there was plenty of it. And during this outbreak, we have heard that it wasn't as plentiful as most of us in the field thought it was, although the supplier and the government is quickly acquiring hundreds of thousands of doses, if not by next year, millions of doses. Let's go to vaccines, Stu. Are we, I know it's become available, Penn, I thought, I think I saw it received 100 doses to something from the Department of Public Health. As this gets rolled out, what are the priorities for vaccination? Who should we be vaccinating and so forth? Yeah, so so this the vaccine, there's actually two smallpox vaccines available. There's a vaccine called ACAM2000, which is a replication-competent vaccine and more similar to the vaccine that was used during the time of smallpox eradication. The problem with that vaccine is that the number of adverse events and potentially serious adverse events with it is going to be very high. And so in weighing the risk-benefit of using that vaccine to try and prevent or to give as post-exposure prophylaxis in to pre- prevent monkeypox disease, at the moment, that risk-benefit ratio makes it seem that the risk of that replication-competent vaccine to be higher than the benefit. So we fortunately have a second vaccine that was FDA approved in 2018 called Genios. And the beauty of this vaccine is it's a much safer vaccine. It, it's a live virus vaccine, but when it's injected into mammalians or mammalian cells, it doesn't form infectious virions. So you inject the virus makes all the proteins it needs to make and that immune response would want to be developed to, but the virus never assembles into a new infectious virion and therefore doesn't spread within the host and is much safer and can be safely used in a lot of populations where the replication-competent vaccine, that ACAM2000 vaccine, would be more dangerous to use. So the Dineos vaccine, which is the one that most people are talking about and wanting to get, it's certainly available as post-exposure prophylaxis, meaning that a case is identified, there's contact tracing, and if you vaccinate someone within the first four days after exposure, you could potentially prevent development of monkeypox or certainly modify the disease. And 
So similarly, people within the first 14 days after an exposure, you could give post-exposure prophylaxis with the vaccine to modify the, the outcome of the infection. So that's the first group, and there's vaccine available for people who are known contacts to monkeypox cases. The CDC has now begun a second phase of vaccinating through a, something they're calling enhanced post-exposure prophylaxis because you may have been exposed but don't know you were exposed, but within the last 14 days did activities that put you at risk of monkeypox and you're in a community where there's monkeypox disease happening. And so that's the second group that is being offered vaccines through the public health channels. And the public health channels have been now distributing these vaccines to, to various centers to make sure it's being equitably provided to, to the communities that are in need of this. Once you've had the vaccine or once you've had monkeypox, what's the duration of immunity How lo- of protection? Yeah, that's a great question and something we're going to learn during this current outbreak. We know for smallpox that if you survived smallpox, you had life, what we would say would be lifelong immunity to, to getting smallpox again, meaning if you were exposed to smallpox later in life, you would not die from the smallpox if you got it again. But as we've learned with COVID and, and the, the vaccines that we're using to prevent COVID is that these vaccines really don't provide what's called sterilizing immunity. You know, they just change the, the, the scales more on the side of the host to respond to the virus and clear the virus. So with monkeypox, it would be expected that you would have pretty good lifelong immunity to monkeypox. But I still, I'm not sure and will learn if you could get reinfected. And if you get reinfected, do you have symptoms? Do you have a mild case, fewer lesions? I think that's something we're going to learn from during this current outbreak. So, Stu, eventually we'll get to the stage where we're, we're maybe we're at that stage now where we're doing a formal vaccination program. It becomes a routine aspect of primary care and uh, among at-risk populations, which I'm sure will evolve and to be defined better as this proceeds to, through the community, right? Yeah, it's still early, and I'm not sure yet uh, if we're at that stage, that there's still some hope that this might be contained and not require continued routine vaccination, similar to what's being done with like a papillomavirus vaccination, which is definitely needed to prevent the cancers that result from the papillomavirus. Hepatitis B virus is a definitely a routine vaccination that's needed to prevent the the problems of, of hepatitis B. Still think we may be early enough to potentially prevent this from moving into just becoming another viral disease that we have to deal with. But, you know, there are others in the field who are saying it's it, we're too late already at this point. Yeah, that was a question I had wanted to ask, Stu, and that is, you know, can we can we put the genie back in the bottle? Is it too late to do that? Or and and I guess you're you're saying varying opinions on that, but you're still yeah, hopeful. Yeah, definitely varying opinions, and that the public health response that you know the communities where this is spreading 
And we've learned this from also the COVID pandemic and, you know, the great hope of the vaccine and how the vaccine was going to allow life to go back to normal. You know, it's just one of the tools of public health. And the current outbreak of monkeypox, we, the vaccine is going to help, but we're also going to need to identify cases, isolate them, prevent further transmissions, and ask communities to potentially decrease any risky behavior, at least for a period of time until we could get better control of the outbreak. And in your population or in the patients you've seen, I assume there's been some contact issues that have come up from patients you've diagnosed. And how are you handling that vaccination piece? We have been provided with a small supply of vaccine here at Penn. And so we have given both post-exposure prophylaxis and we have given PEP++ is what Stu was getting at, which is post-exposure prophylaxis for people who are at highest risk of, of coming down with monkeypox. So we have offered vaccine to patients that, for instance, have had a sexually transmitted disease within the last three months. And, you know, Penn Chart's great with that. We can actually run reports and find out who we need to call and invite to come in. And we've also given vaccine to patients who have been known contacts to patients with monkeypox. It's a well-tolerated shot. It's, you know, you don't get sick like you do with a COVID shot. It's one shot? It's meant to have a second shot a month later, but it remains to be seen. We're not currently anticipating that we're going to have adequate supplies to give that second shot. CDC is not making that promise yet. Eventually, people will get a second shot, but it probably won't be within a month because we have so many people that need their first shot. Yeah, although I do think the goal is for the the prime and boost. The, it's a two-shot regimen for this Genios vaccine to get the best immunity from it. And so, you know, with limited supply, the goal was to get as much vaccine out in the, those initial vaccinations, but then additional supplies are coming and jurisdictions are getting enough supplies to do that second vaccination. So the real hope is to get that second dose in within a month, plus or minus seven days. So I have two residual questions just to clean up some things from before. And forgive me if I use the wrong terms. It's been a while since medical school. But the latency <laughs> from exposure to clinical manifestations, forgotten exactly what that's termed. It may be latency. Yeah, incubation <laughs> Thank you. period. Incubation yeah. period. Stu, what is that? So somebody's exposed and then they show signs of symptoms. Could you say what right, that is? Right, yeah. So someone's exposed, and it really depends on the mode of exposure, and that's what's been a little different in this current worldwide outbreak, where some of the exposures happen and then disease is manifested within days of the exposure, and the commonly seen in like genital lesions or perirectal lesions and when it begins to be more heterosexually transmitted into women, I believe vaginal lesions could potentially come up very quickly. In other cases, depending on the exposure, you get the incubation period where there's a period of time where the virus has gotten in and it's now traveling to a regional lymph node, replicating, and then 
there's a remic phase where the virus then spreads, and that's when you then get these diffuse skin lesions in various parts of the body, as Anna was describing, on the arms, on the potentially on the trunk, potentially on the face. So, so that the incubation period is a period of time when the virus has initially gotten in. You're presumably not infectious during that period of time. Then you get the prodrome during this viremic phase where the virus then spreads and you get these lesions popping up in other parts of the body. And that time delay, that incubation period is typically uh, how long? Yeah, it could potentially be like two weeks. And that's part of the reason why the post-exposure prophylactic vaccine has some efficacy that during that incubation period while the virus is growing, if you give the vaccine, which is a, gives a lot of the antigenic load to just say, hey, body, this is a foreign thing, develop an immune response to it, and then the immune, both the innate and adaptive immune responses kick in and can alter the progression of the monkeypox during that incubation period. The other cleanup question I had just from our discussion previously is, you know, what are the criteria that are informing your decision to treat with the viral medication you mentioned? We're offering treatment to patients that are immunocompromised. So in my practice for patients with HIV who have a CD4 count less than 200, we're offering treatment to patients who have the potential to have severe disease. So particularly the perianal lesions tend to be very painful. And so for many of those patients, they're so uncomfortable that we're offering treatment for them. For patients who are at risk with oral lesions where they might develop dehydration, it's gotten a little easier to get the drug. It's a well-tolerated drug. And so we're getting more comfortable giving it to people where we think that you know, I have to admit, I'm thinking maybe they'll be less contagious. Maybe they'll they'll be able to get out of isolation sooner because they're not staying in isolation as long as we want them to. So I have liberalized my criteria somewhat, but I'm not offering it to people who are like clinically well with just a rash. Is it orderable and epic? Yes, it's orderable and epic, but you can't get the drug. You have to, if, if you have a patient that needs tecarivimat, you have to reach out to one of us or to the pharmacy to get it. Commercial pharmacies don't have it. Yeah, just Kendall, I could add add to that on. So one of the problems again with being prepared and then being able to roll out medicines and vaccines in a public health crisis like this in the population where this is in is the implementation has been difficult so Tecaviramat has FDA approval for treatment of smallpox. Even though we know that it will work against monkeypox, it, it has to be done under an investigational new drug. And, and the CDC has a protocol, an emergency access IND. And that creates some of the cumbersomeness of using the drug because you require written informed consent to use the drug, and then there are some additional logistics with the CDC, which they have simplified over time. But this is this is not like the emergency use authorizations that we had with some of the COVID drugs and vaccines once clinical trials showed that they were safe and efficacious. 
we know this drug is safe because it's been tested in humans and it's safe, but it doesn't have FDA approval for treatment of monkeypox. I'm also gathering that it's not something primary care physicians will be ordering as of yet. Yeah. So I think we will, it will be very similar, depending on how this epidemic goes, it's going to be similar to what we've experienced with COVID. At the beginning, it was just the specialist kind of seeing and treating, and then more cases came and the, and drugs became easier to access and prescribe that, you know, it could someday become a disease where primary care doctors are both diagnosing and treating because it's going to be mainly an outpatient disease as, as we're currently seeing it. Well, that's wonderful information from both of you. I, I want to give you an opportunity to say something to the primary care community if there's additional points you want to make. I would just say, you know, testing has become much easier, as Anne described, and that at this point where we're learning about the disease and trying to see where it is and who has it, that if you have a question, if you're not sure of the diagnosis, and frequently monkeypox occurs with other sexually transmitted infections, that it may be worth doing more testing, at least initially, to see if the case you are seeing in front of you is a, a case of monkeypox. So thank you both for coming on. This was really timely and very important. I learned a lot, and I'm sure the members of the primary care community did as well. This is something that we're all sort of struggling to figure out. And you've answered many of the most important questions. So I really appreciate you both coming on. My pleasure. Kendall, thanks for the invite. I really enjoyed it. And I hope it's helpful. <laughs> it will be, Stu. Thank you so much. So pl please join us again next time for the Penn Primary Care Podcast. Please note that this podcast is for educational purposes only. For specific questions, please contact your physician, and if an emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency department.